Today's guest is fitness Olympian, 11-time author, U.S. Air Force veteran, health and personal development expert, Letitia Action Jackson. She will discuss mastering the art of self-care through the journey of self-love. So without further ado, let's welcome my guest, Letitia Action Jackson. Letitia Action Jackson, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out to be on our podcast. (laughs) I am totally amazing, Professor D. I am excited. I have to tell you every time that you and I have any type of encounter, whether it's face-to-face, via phone, I feed off your energy. It's such a blessing to have come across someone like yourself. Um, I'm excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. First, tell us a bit about your background. Absolutely. As you just stated, my name and my brand name is Letitia Action Jackson. I am a fitness Olympian, 11-time author. I am a globally recognized health and fitness expert. I am a wellness advocate, a veteran of the United States Air Force, and I spend most of my days, whether it's on stage or inside of corporations or high schools, using my background, either teaching people from a personal development lens, a wellness lens, or a leadership lens. And so I am multifaceted. Oftentimes when people meet me, they like to ask you, what do you do? And I often redirect them and I tell them that what I do is just a byproduct of who I am and who I am is a woman on a mission to help other people get the lifestyle skills and the, the, the education and the experience that they need to thrive. And so, you know, I am energetic. I am full of knowledge. I am full of love and just a woman passionate about people. You are a veteran. Now, when and where did you serve? Yes, I am actually a United States Air Force veteran. So whoop, whoop to all my, my U.S. Air Force women. I served at one duty station at, um, what is it? Not Lackland. Gosh, Randolph Air Force Base. I had one duty station where I spent all my time there. You mentioned that you were created for greatness and that you knew around 19 years old that you were created for greatness. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, and yes again. I, I love this question. Often when people ask me, where did all of this start? I like to say to them, I was born with greatness. And I truly believe God created everyone with greatness within them. Just sometimes our environments do not cultivate that. When I went in the military at 19 years old, when I first got there, they gave me the position of a trash monitor. The responsibilities of a trash monitor was basically to go around the base and pick up trash. If you know me, I have tons of energy. And so I was like, this is the perfect job for me because I don't have to be in one place all day. A week within basic training, our training instructor came back and he was like, Jackson, you're no longer a trash monitor. You are a element leader. And I kind of looked at him like, what do you mean? An element leader was responsible for the entire troops, marching them to their classes teaching them, leading them. And at 19 years old, I was thrusted into a leadership position 
that I always knew that I was qualified for. I thrived in that leadership position. Sometimes I would march troops of two to 300 to class, from class. I would lead PT. And I knew even at 19, the impact that I had on people, I would not only have the people I was leading wash toilets, but I would as well. And so I ended up graduating gosh, one out of five people to graduate with honors out of a class of 500. And I just knew, you know, when I was marching my troops and I had that leadership role in my spirit, I knew that God was preparing me for something even greater one day. And so I knew even at 19 that I had an amazing impact and I had amazing leadership capabilities, even at that age. What would you be doing if you weren't doing what you do now? Oh my gosh. So great question. I believe I would have either went into law or I would have become a medical doctor. And I say those two because I've always loved people. I have a very strong voice. I have a very strong moral compass. And I believe that I am a voice for many people that have not cultivated their voices. And I would have either went into I don't really know which side of law I went into, probably more of women's health policies. And then on the medical side, I probably would have went into cardiology. What was a turning point in your life and how did it affect you? I think that there's turning points in all of our lives. I think what's important is that we recognize those moments. And when those moments come, we have to really pause and determine how are we going to allow them to redirect us. To answer your question, for me, that turning point was at 29 when I experienced domestic violence and almost lost my life. And so at that time, I was competing as a top athlete. I was in magazines such as Oxygen Magazine, Muscle and Fitness Hers. I was doing really well on the outside, but I had not dealt with a lot of internal issues that I had as a young girl. And I just grew up to be a broken woman with a little girl inside of her. And so when I found myself in a closet with hands around my neck, I can remember praying, but at the same time, trying to figure out how I got there. You know, I was successful by the world's standards, but success is not always the outcomes that we see. I was broken on the inside. So my turning point for me was at 29 years old. What inspired you to help others about self-care? You know, I can remember the very first time when I was in the military, I ended up colliding with a local bodybuilder. His name was Gunnar Lewis. I met him at the gym one day and Gunnar asked me, you know, what do you do? What sport do you play? And at the time, I can remember saying to him, I don't play a sport. I just work out. And he said to me, you've got really great genetics. I believe you would do very well as a fitness competitor. At the time, I had no familiarity with what a fitness competitor was. Therefore, I went and I did some research. I came back to him and I said, hey, I have the skills that is required for this field. Why don't you train me? And I want to compete. And so he committed to training me for six months. I competed in my very first fitness competition on May the 21st, 2001, I won the entire show and took home the overall fitness title. And after I won that competition and I would be out in public or somewhere on the base, people began to ask me, how did I get into such great conditioning? 
at the time I, I didn't know I had a trainer, but I realized that as more and more people started to ask me, I realized that I loved, I loved the interaction with the people, but I didn't have an understanding of the physiology of how to become healthy. So I got out of the military in 2001 and 2002, I went straight to school and I earned my first degree in human performance. And so I I often go back to it found me, you know, I I started a sport where I saw my body transform. I was always disciplined, but training two, three times a day took my discipline to a whole nother level. And I wanted to give that to other people, but I needed the education. So I got out of the military, went to school and I haven't stopped since then. (laughs) Now, this is a feat. You wrote seven books in one year. And now you're an author of 11 books. Tell me how you did it. Wow. So I have to tell you, when I tell people that I wrote seven books in one year, they look at me in dismay like you how. And I will tell you how. My very first book, after I left my domestic violence situation, I was in a very dark space. And I can remember feeling depressed, feeling anxious, feeling angry, a lot of shame. And I, I, I was angry with the world, but I was more angry with myself. And I'm a believer of Jesus Christ, and a lot of people have their own beliefs. But for me, God was my anchor and still is. And I remember leaving church one day and six months prior to this particular day, I remember in my heart, in my spirit, I heard the Lord say, I want you to write a book. And I was angry. I was like, I'm not writing anything. I have nothing to say. And so I kind of ignored what I felt and heard in my spirit. And then I was leaving church one day, an older gentleman comes to me and he's like, "I, I feel like the Lord spoke to my heart regarding you. And I just kind of stared at him and I said, well, sir, what do you feel that the Lord spoke to you? And he said, the Lord says, do what he asked you to do. And in that moment, I knew that it was, it was a call for me to use my experience and share my domestic violence, but tie that and tie it back to what does it mean to be well? So I didn't know how to write a book. I had never even thought about becoming an author But only thing I knew was that I had a willing heart and a broken heart and I needed to heal. So that particular day I went home and I said, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to write. I'm very smart. I've got tons of stuff in my head. I'm just going to write. And I ended up writing about 400 pages and met someone that knew how to form a book for his content outline chapters. And my first book had 240 pages. So after that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have so much more to say. I took a lot of the content from that book, created new chapters and started writing books and wrote seven of them in one year. (laughs) I, (laughs) you know, I, I have to tell you, Professor, I didn't tell you how I got the name Action Jackson. I got that name from my training instructor in the military And it fits me so well, because I'm going to tell you, once I put in my mind that I want something done, it gets done. I'm a beast. I have such a mental strength. It is unstoppable. So I knew what I wanted. I created outlines for it. And you were able to actually read and experience one of my books. And 
now I have 11 of them. And I probably would have 10 more if I allowed myself, but I'm not, not right now. <laughs> what is the importance of sharing your story? That is such a great question. It's my belief that storytelling connects us. And unfortunately, not only in the African-American community, but just globally, the, the subject matter of domestic violence is something I believe we're still not ready to really, we, we have October where it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but I don't think that we have enough conversations around it. And so me sharing my story is, is for multiple reasons. For one, it is very important for me that women work on the inside of who they are. And what I mean by that is that we're such a visual culture. We spend a lot of our time perfecting the outside. However, we seldom spend time looking within. And despite having one of the most fit bodies, I've been in Oxygen Magazine, Muscle and Fitness Hers. I've been in magazines in Australia made the cover of a magazine in 2018. If you Google Letitia Action Jackson, I've been everywhere. I was successful on the outside, but my inside and my outside, they, they collided, they didn't match. And so for me, when we talk about people being well, we have to talk about mental wellness. We have to talk about emotional wellness. We have to talk about social wellness. We must shift the mindset to a holistic approach to people being well. And that's what I do in my books. I want a woman to pick the book up, the book in which you're speaking on, Change the Norm. And I want her to see herself in that conversation. That book was written in a tone from a sister to sister. For me asking her the questions of not only where are you today, but let's go back to your genesis. How did you get to where you're at? When did you stop loving yourself? When did you stop valuing your body? When did you stop valuing your mind? Because many of us as African-American women have experienced trauma like myself. So if I don't share with you where I've been, I'm doing you a disservice. And that's why sharing my story is essential. The impact of obesity in African-American women seem to be the norm. How are we supporting our women? I think what saddens me about our culture, and I'm just going to be very transparent, we shift our mindset and we put a lot of value in things that when we are in our 60s, 70s, and 80s are not going to be really relevant. And what I mean by that is that we are a culture that brags on being busy. You know, when you talk to someone, especially women, one of the things that I hear often is, oh, I'm just so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And I, I, I really want to encourage whomever is listening to this podcast to really stop and pause and ask yourself, is busyness worth your health? Is being too busy to take a moment out to meditate and pray for five, 10 minutes? Or is, are you too busy to take 30 minutes out and go exercise? And if that answer is yes, we really need to reprioritize our lives. Because when we become sick, we can't undo a lot of the things that we've done to our bodies. You look at diabetes, heart disease, obesity, 80% of the illnesses we see in a healthcare system are chronically, they're chronic diseases and they're lifestyle related. 
meaning that 80% of these illnesses can be healed or prevented through eating healthy, through rest, through uh, annual checkups, and through exercise. We don't have to be a culture of sick people. Now, there are some illnesses that we cannot prevent. Maybe some of them are genetic, but the food choices, like we get to choose what we put in our mouth. Exercise choices, we get to choose if we go exercise. Choosing to exercise and choosing not to exercise is still a choice. So we always have to shift our mindset back to what do we value? Discuss the impact of social disparities and the cultural norms of black women. I'm glad that you asked that question because that was the the genesis of this book. I was in New Orleans or I forget where I was at. I was in the South. I'm from Florida, but I was either in New Orleans or Alabama. And if you know anything about the public health field, those states have a high prevalence of obesity and not only obesity, but morbid obesity. And I can remember sitting and watching just the people walk by. And what I found to be so alarming was that so many of our African-American women's bodies were so large and it had become the norm. So it wasn't a big deal in the South. It's like, yeah, okay, well, she's obese or morbidly obese. It was a norm. And then from a cultural standpoint, we labeled it as, well, girl, she's just thick. And I'm like, no, that, there's no medical terminology thick. We are obese. And that is medically determined by a body mass index of 30 or more. And then you look at the body mass index and you look at the correlation of chronic diseases like heart disease that kills more African-American women. We are not doing a good enough job of making sure African-American women have the knowledge, the awareness, and not only that, but the education and the resources to become well. A lot of medical research in the beginning was done on white men, and then the research was done on white women. If you look at the infant mortality rates and the uh, maternal mortality rates for black women, we're leading the path. So when one asks the question, what are we doing for African-American women's health? I say we're not doing enough. And that's why I wrote this book, because it is my belief that better health starts with you as an individual. If I can educate you and bring you the awareness, support, and tools, then you can go out the next time you go to your doctor's appointment and say, hey, I found this lump in my breast because I was doing a monthly self-breast exam. It feels different than how it felt last month. I am empowering you with the tools to be in control of your health. Instead of waiting around for someone else to tell you it's time for you to become well, we must reclaim our own health and step up and make sure that we are making sure that we are okay. And we have to be okay with not being okay. Discuss strong black women syndrome. Absolutely. In the book, I talk about the strong black woman and they actually now through research have called it a syndrome. You know, to talk about that syndrome, we have to go back historically. And what I mean is even slavery. From the time that the Black woman showed up on the planet, whether it was her tilling the, the field of a slave owner, <laughs> feeding the, the child of a Caucasian woman with her own breast milk, um, taking care of her community, the Black woman has always been the pillar of, of communities. The black woman built this world on her back. 
And so historically, because those demands have always been put on her, we adopted this philosophy of I'm a strong black woman. The danger within that is that we show strength on the outside, but on the inside, we're falling apart. We're in constant state of stress. We're not eating right. We're not sleeping well. And then we're dealing with systemic racism. So you couple all of these things together and then you look at the health outcomes and it speaks to you. Why do you think that gyms are not being marketed to black women? I think that gyms are not marketing to African-American women because the data doesn't show historical purposes of, of products like that. And so if I know as a facility, if I'm looking at data and I don't know if gyms actually look at demographics as far as, as ethnicity or race, I'm sure they do because marketing is based on data. If, if I am not seeing the data that, that proves that this population purchases these products and services, why would I market it to you? So then on the flip side of that, when you look at diet pills and you look at waist trimmers and you look at detox pills, a lot of those products are being marketed to black women. Because if you look at the historic data, they purchase those items. And so for me, I've been in a lot of big box gyms for the last 20 years. I can count the, the number of black women that I have, have seen in those facilities. So that says a couple of things. And that's why the book is also, once again, called Changing the Norm. We must start welcoming black women into these spaces. Wellness is not a space for the black woman. When you look at advertising, whether it's yoga, whether it's clean eating, whether it's, um, gosh, hydro, uh, hydrotherapy or other type of uh, naturopathic medicine routes, it's not promoted to us. So therefore, one must have to ask themselves, is there bias in the healthcare and the wellness industry? And the answer is yes. So uh, a black woman's health outcome is multifaceted. It's just not because she's eating unhealthy or she's not exercising, we've got systems that are not supporting her and becoming well. What is withering and how does it affect women? Oh my gosh, that term was actually and is relevant to a researcher and I don't remember her name right off the bat. I think she came out of either Duke or maybe John Hopkins, she's a Caucasian woman. In her early studies in public health, she was working with African-American women team moms, and there were a lot of health issues going on. At first, a lot of people tried to pinpoint socioeconomics were the reason for high teen pregnancy. And as she did more and more research and did more and more qualitative research, meaning she would sit with the women and speak with them, she found that economics and age, although they were minimal factors, they were not the factors that were leading to it. What she wanted to do then was move from the teens and move to older women. And so women like myself who are highly educated, um, highly successful, were showing that they were having more issues with their pregnancies and postpartum. What they found was, or what she found was, that black women are experiencing stress. 
through racism, through economics, not having the money to support themselves. And our bodies are so well constructed by God. There's what's called a fight or flight syndrome. When we are in a state of perceived danger, and I'm going to use the word perceived because that's exactly the mechanism of the fight or flight, our adrenal glands releases the hormone adrenaline. And what that does is it prepares our body either to fight or to flight, means to flee. And so when a black woman is in that constant state of fight or flight, think about this. If I go through an episode of being angry, my heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, I release this adrenal uh, hormone. So all of my other organs also are now working over time. So there's this high period of time while there's a high concentration of this hormone, but then there's also a drop right? Where my body wants to go back to homeostasis. Although it will return, it also has done its damage to get back to that normal state. When black women are in this condition every day, year after year, month after month, day after day, it withers away our bodies. And that is a concept of withering. It's real. Do you think that technology somehow impacts our health? Technology is killing us. And, and not figuratively, Literally, there is a term called digital toxicity. We spend so much time on electronic devices. This is the thing. America has an obesity epidemic. So, so many American adults are, are obese and now our youth are, are, are obese as well. You couple that with video games, you couple that with YouTube, you couple that with Facebook, you couple that with streaming. We're sitting more and we're moving less. We're more engaged, but yet we're more separated. So although technology has its advancements, i.e., you know, now instead of doing invasive procedures in the medical field, there's technologies that allow us to treat maybe a mother who has um, issues with her fetus before the baby's born, instead of going in and being evasive or invasive with it, we can use certain technologies. In a medical field, you know, someone with diabetes, instead of having to take a shot to check or, or to poke their finger, there are certain sensory receptor machines that they can use. Technology has its place. However, when it comes to affecting our health, Americans are too connected. We spend too much time sitting. We have low back issues. We have android obesity, which means we have a high amount of body fat around our core because we don't eat healthy, we don't exercise, and our minds are overstimulated. You cannot be engaged 24 hours a day and expect to be holistically well. It's impossible. What makes you take a breath of relief as soon as you do it? Oh my gosh, that's such a deep question. What makes me take a breath of relief? You know, I am learning. I, I wish I could tell you, Professor D, that I've mastered the art of self-care. I will say I'm mastering the art of self-care every day. But what's so interesting about my self-care is that through the journey of learning to love myself, I had to be honest with myself and acknowledge that I was giving myself out to too many people. And not in a sense of 
the nature of the work, but a sense of devaluing. And so once I realized that I was in spaces that I was not appreciated, I was in spaces where I was overused and underpaid, a part of my self-care and a part of me exhaling was giving myself permission to say that your gifts are not what you bring to the world. You are the gift which you bring to the world. And you must understand your own value. And I exhale when I can say I am valuable, not because of what I bring, but because of who I am. And that allows me to breathe. And that allows me to take time for myself. Every morning, I make sure I take time to connect with myself. I look in the mirror and I say, wow, good morning, beautiful. And I go through a list of things that I tell myself. And then I make myself some coffee and I sit and I read my Bible because how can I give to the world if I first have not exhaled with myself and God? And so I exhale when I read the word of God because it's a love story to me. It tells me who I am. So when I go into the world, I'm not going into the world in a deficit. And that to me is what it means to be well, to look at myself and see my own value. And I, I make a huge difference in this world a huge difference. And for that, I'm thankful. Who are your personal heroes? Whose shoulders do you stand on? I will have to say one of my personal heroes is my mom. My mom was married for 18 years and she and my father divorced. She raised three girls on her own. And I, I proudly say that each one of us have turned out to be absolutely amazing women. We are women of character. We are women of substance. We are women who, um, gosh, just take care of ourselves in the world around us. And we have a strong moral compass because of her. So I definitely stand on her shoulders. I stand on the shoulders of my two sisters. These women have been through their own adversities and their own challenges. And I see how they take care of their families. I see their inner strength. Um... Gosh, I think about standing on the shoulders of Michelle Obama. I've never really had a woman that I admired. Like, I don't believe in idolizing. I, I believe in admiration. And I will tell you, when she was in office, I could sit for days and just listen to her speak. One of the things that I loved about her is that she's just her. And I think that that's something I value about myself is that I show up in a room myself every time I show up in a room and irregardless of her position and the impact of, of a global audience, she always showed up herself. And I think in the media, often the African-American woman is showed in a negative light. There was nothing negative about her when she showed up. So, um, gosh, there's so many women's shoulders I stand on. I, I think about Maya Angelou. I think about how her words, even now in her, you know, passing still resonate with so many of us, you know, still I rise. It's just, I think the older I get, I will have to tell you, Professor, I am honored to be a Black woman. It, it, is, it is an honor to be a Black woman and think about all of the Black women that paved a way for me and that are still paving a way for me. I'm honored to be in the skin I'm in. For more information about self-care, where should our listeners go? Yes, they can go to my business website at empoweredcoaching.com. And that is the letter N as in Nancy, empoweredcoaching.com. 
I'm also, they can also find us. We're starting to go on YouTube. We do a lot of work in person, but as we stated earlier, the world is changing. So they can find our company on YouTube at Empowered Coaching. And then they can find us on Facebook at Empowered Coaching. And then also they can find us on Instagram at Empowered Coaching. What does it mean to be well to you? Every woman must define that on her own terms. And once you define that, reach out to me. I would love to figure out if through what we offer as a company, we can help you get to the place that you see as being well.